On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Yesterday was July the 16th. That's the anniversary of maybe one of the most divisive acts ever to pass through uh, the Oireachtas in its history, the Censorship of Publications Act 1929. Uh, Far-reaching and initially with no means of appeal for authors who found their books being banned under that new law. Uh, Most of the Irish victims are well known, but some of the international books uh, are somewhat surprising. And Donald Vallon has just come away, I'm sure, from from the crypts of some national archive, (laughs) uh, coming away with all manner of subversive stuff to tell us what has been banned over the years. Um, Donald, few acts have been quite as notorious as one of the ones we're going to talk about today. Yeah, and censorship is one of those kind of reoccurring uh, themes on on, on this slot. We've sometimes looked at a a single book, why was that banned, what was that all about? We've never really looked at the overarching thing of the Censorship of Publications Act uh, itself. And it's an amazing act. This was a transform not just Irish literature as an art, uh, but Irish publishing as an industry, you know, because it brought a real degree of fear into publishing. And it sent kind of many very good Irish writers, unfortunately, uh, into the hands of foreign publishers. And look, we always make this point. It's not like there wasn't censorship in other places. Mm. I mean, it existed everywhere. Uh, one of the great protest posters behind the Iron Curtain said, "If if Samuel Beckett had been born in Czechoslovakia, we'd still be waiting for Godot." You know, like books, <laughs> books were books were banned in yes. other political <laughs> systems as well. Yeah, that's a joke written by someone who doesn't understand that Godot never shows up anyway. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But as we'll get into today, spoiler alert, everyone. There, sorry, there was a uniquely Irish kind of censorship and a uniquely Irish regime, and it was one that kind of left authors and publishers a little bit bewildered as the how a book had fallen foul of them. And with no means of appeal, at least in the initial years, uh, it seemed the kind of especially cruel approach. A list of banned books would appear in a, in, a, in a newspaper with no reason why it had happened and no way to appeal it either. And indeed, pretty extensive lists of books that were banned that would appear in newspapers because one of the notable features of this whole regime is just how many books were banned, which almost led people to wonder if literacy was actually permitted at all. Like, was <laughs> yeah. it actually, was reading now banned under law? It was so ruthless, you know, the, the the Central Publications Act in terms of its powers. I mean, the sheer number of books banned led people to question, could they actually be reading these books uh, that they're banning? You know, how many hours are in the day? And, and Senator John Keane in, in, in the Shannon, who was a real opponent of censorship, he stood up in the 1940s and he made a very good point. He said, in the 13 years during which this act has been in operation, 1,600 books have been censored. That's an average of three books a week. Mm. And he asked, you know, is it conceivable that the censors, who aren't being paid for this, and many of whom have other occupations, can possibly read as they should read if they're to do their duty in deciding whether a book infringes the definition of indecency three books a week in addition to other books which they read and which they haven't banned. Well, in last words. point, it's a very, very yeah. important one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so like it's, it's, it's an achievement already to be reading three books a week, but that's on top of the ones that they thought were okay. That's, that's just the books you're banning. You know, so how yeah. many books were supposed to be passing through the censorship regime? Uh, a very, very good point by Senator Kane. Uh, the journey to the Censorship of Publications Act begins a few years before it's eventually uh, enacted, but um, it's maybe a little bit surprising just exactly who was asked for, for some guidance and input into yeah. the whole thing. They, they set up a thing called the Committee on Evil literature. <laughs> so, that is the best quote ever. The name itself uh, I, gives you. I, I want to go to stateboards.ie right now and find the, the latest applicants yeah. for the Committee on Evil Literature. That's a brilliant gig. With a name like that, you'd be asking, are we the bad guys? You know, a Committee on <laughs> Evil Literature in 1926. Uh, to report on, quote, whether it is necessary or advisable in the interests of public morality to extend the existing powers of the state to prohibit or restrict the sale and circulation of printed matter. Okay, so who would you ask to sit on the committee uh, Mm. of of evil literature? Three laymen, two clergymen. And the the committee ultimately recommends, surprise, surprise, 
the establishment of a censorship board of publications uh, when they when they submit their report to the Minister for Justice, Kevin O'Higgins. So it wasn't exactly a surprise that they felt that way. You know, they were they were recommend uh, stricter powers. Mm. And when this board then comes about, this 1929 Act, the Censorship of Publications Act, it gives the board really far-reaching powers uh, to ban not only books but periodicals, magazines okay. that they deem to be immoral. And yet you can't really overemphasize this point. They're not required to reveal the reasoning behind the censorship of any publication. Okay. But you can see early on what they're going for. I mean, initially the board were primarily concerned with kind of issues of sexual morality. So they banned, for example, works by uh, Mary Stopes and Margaret Sanger, the birth control activists. Okay. Um, so they're, they're not required to tell you why they're banning it. Is that one of those things where like, if they tell you what's so outrageous about it, then they're only going to try and increase demand for it. So maybe they're trying to, to keep the, the reasons on the QT, um, which I suppose has, has some logic to it. Um, the first Irish author banned is not Joyce. And actually, we've discussed on this slot before how Ulysses wasn't so much banned in Ireland as much as there was no appetite for it in the first place at the time. Um, but the first Irish author who is banned under this act uh, is not Joyce or any other major luminary, but instead it's it's a writer from Inish Moore. It's Liam O'Flaherty. And I think, you know, we always think about Irish censorship as being kind of sex obsessed uh, but it was probably more likely politics that upset the censor when it came to Liam O'Flaherty mm. uh, born in Inishmore 1896 he was really on the way up in the 20s he had a, a great novel The Informer set during the War of Independence later became a, 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 an award winning film but he was kind of deeply hostile to the emerging free state he kind of viewed it as a betrayal you know of the promise of the revolutionary period and he writes this book called House of Gold and it has the honour of being you know the first Irish author the first Irish novel formally banned uh, by the act it's set on Ireland's west coast it's an attack on kind of the, the church and state and the villains are described as quote an oppressive native Gumby in ascendancy buttressed by the Catholic church <laughs> it has <laughs> wow. a, a strong anti-clerical sentiment and when you couple that with you know there's an extramarital affair in the book involving a priest oh, right, okay, it yeah. stood very little chance so for all the talk of Ulysses being banned when it never was it's House of Gold which you know so few of us have ever had the chance to read mm. uh, that's the book that, that finds its way I suppose on the wrong side of the sentence Some of the overseas books uh, and some of the names that appeared uh, on this list can be fairly surprising particularly when you consider that some of them then later ended up on like school curricula Yeah so one of the most interesting uh, international banned books was The Catcher in the Rye that was banned in, in 1951 one of the great coming of age stories you yeah. know? Uh, and then The Catcher in the Rye later ends up on the Leaving Cert exam which is amazing <laughs> yeah. uh, and big names internationally Hemingway Ernest Hemingway uh, he had an Irish secretary and he was really curious about this because Hemingway was a, a great friend of Joyce and he had a great grow for Ireland uh, and he asked his secretary, you know, well, what's the view of my books in Ireland? And, and and she said, we didn't read him. His books had cursing in them, we were told. He was divorced and had affairs. So, you know, <laughs> so Hemingway... it wasn't even that there was divorce in the books, just that the author was divorced. They were like, oh, we can't so, be having that. Hemingway came away believing that it was his own life and the scandals of his own life that had kept him off the bookshelves in Ireland. Uh, and the important bit, and you've just touched on it there, that it wasn't uh, all literature in, in the sort of the classic sense as such, because magazines were also in the firing line, which which had some more high profile uh, clauses until fairly recently. Yes, yeah, some of them more, more famous uh, examples of things being banned in Ireland from magazines. There was a, a Spare Rib. What a great name that is for a <laughs> feminist magazine. Spare Rib was spare a, rib. A, a British feminist publication. That's a great name. In the Sorry, 1970s. I wanted to just, just realise the significance of that. that. That is, of course, women being created from a spare rib of Adam. Yeah. That's brilliant. It's a great name Excellent. for a magazine, isn't it? And you know, like Woman's World and Woman's Way and all these publications. It was kind of like a feminist alternative uh, to commercial women's magazines. So a lot in it on birth control, abortion access, all of that stuff. But it's banned by the censorship of publications board. Uh, and a statement from the board says, 
Uh, it was unusual, actually. When it came to magazines, they tended to give you a sense why they were doing it. The, the magazine was found to have been usually or infrequently indecent or obscene. And for that reason, the sale or distribution in the state of said issues or future issues of said periodical publication should be prohibited. So, yeah, I mean, this wasn't just something that was fought over great works of literature. This was literally fought over what was available in the local news agents. Mm. Um, all of this then comes to a head and ends up being slowly fragmented away, or maybe the, the first chip in the wall of all of this is uh, the banning of works by two authors in the 1960s. Yeah, I think if there's if there's two um, names, if you will, that are synonymous with the end of censorship in Ireland, it's John McGahern and, and Edna O'Brien. So we have John McGahern's book, The Dark, uh, incredible read, really shines a light on kind of parental and, and, and clerical child abuse. And the fallout from the publication of that book uh, McGahern loses his job as a primary school teacher. There's massive condemnation of the decision. Sam Beckett actually writes to him and, and says, look, I'm disgusted by this. And Do you want me to publicly come out and say something about what's happened here? And McGahern says, I wrote back to thank him, but said I didn't want any protest. If it wasn't for Mr. Beckett writing to me, I wouldn't have even been asked. But I was secretly ashamed, not because of the book, but because this was our country and we're making bloody fools uh, of ourselves. And then after this McGahern fallout comes Edna O'Brien, mm. uh, Edna great trilogy of books, what we call the Country Girls trilogy. You know, oh, this the depiction of just female sexuality was too much for some, yeah. uh, including Archbishop John Charles McQuaid. He oh, described so was, the books. I, if anyone was opening a sweepstake as to how long it would take yeah. for his name to come yeah, up, there, there you go. go. Yeah. But McQuaid described O'Brien's books as a smear on Irish womanhood, which is extraordinary. But then McQuaid's biographer says something that I think is really, really true. John Cooney he says, it made O'Brien a cult figure for young people who were eager to buy and read her book illegally and this is, there we go this yeah. is what happens this is the passion of St. Tibulus you tell people not to go to something right not <laughs> yeah. to watch something or read something they're going to and the Country Girls is a great example uh, of that it became cool it became countercultural. you know yeah. they carry around an Edna O'Brien book in the which, 1960s which, which then sort of begs the question as to how exactly you get hold of an Edna O'Brien book if they've all been censored anyway but of course this is something that which the author herself had had a go because she wanted to just test out just how extensive this was and tried to bring some of her own books through customs to see what had happened. There's a great newspaper report from 66. Edna O'Brien, the Clareborn authoress, not author, authoress, authoress. landed at wow. Dublin Airport on Saturday night with five copies of her books. She left the airport holding only the dust, the dust jackets of her novels. The customs officials had confiscated the books. Now, that was the entire point. You know, That's exactly yeah. What, yeah. what she wanted to do. If they, Perhaps if they were in her bag, she would have got away with it. But I think when more and more people were moving between these islands you know, for, for work and even, even socially, mm. it, it kind of it made censorship seem a little bit ridiculous. And it's thanks to people like Edna that from 67, the reforms that are introduced are, are fantastic. So publications, bans and publications would expire after a period of 12 years. And the immediate effect of that reform was the unbanning of thousands of books kind of overnight. Mm. Also, an appeal process, finally, authors had some clue uh, why their books had, had fallen foul. So I think John McGahern, and, and McGahern fell into a great depression after his book was banned and didn't want to fight, but the public did. Yeah. And Edna O'Brien, I think those controversies were, you know, fundamentally important in, in shifting public opinion on the role of that, that censorship of publications board in, in our lives. It's probably worth just recalling as well that that wasn't the end of, of uh, censorship of, of publications in general, because there still is to this day some means through which that you can appeal to have a book taken out of the market if you believe that it's got some sort of inappropriate content in one form or another. I do remember when it was republished in 2013, 14-ish, um, somebody made an appeal that Alan Shatter's Laura should be banned because of the single <laughs> scene in which there is sex between a TD and their assistant in Leinster House. And Alan Shatter, being the Minister for Justice at the time, had to reappoint a new board 
to consider the complaint because the board had fallen dormant because no one was ever making complaints anymore uh, had to reappoint the board and then kind of recuse himself from any responsibility in dealing with their answer because he was the Minister for Justice and it was all being investigated at the time uh, that is uh, another gem as ever brought to you by Donald Fallon who is the author of the Khmer Dumi books and also of Henrietta Street from Tenement to Suburbia about the social history of Dublin in the 20th century he's also the presenter of the Three Castles Burning podcast about the history of Dublin which you'll find anywhere you get your audio online on the record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PWC. Sunday morning at 11. On News Talk.